0: All right, thanks for tuning in. You are listening to Gaucho Amigos. I'm Alex. If you're new, thanks for joining me as I continue my deep dive into the world of Steely Dan. And if you're a returning listener, uh, thanks for joining me for a second year of Steely Dan interviews. Yeah, perhaps against my better judgment, uh, I'm going to do another year of this. You know, it'll be a similar mix of chats with fans, uh, writers, musicians, uh, and people who knew or collaborated with Donald and Walter. And uh, today's guest is someone who actually fits into all four of those buckets. His name is Paul Grimstad, and uh, his writing has been featured in many well-known publications, including The New Yorker and The Paris Review. He's also an accomplished film composer. Uh, He did the scores for the films Heaven Knows What, Uh, directed by the Safdie Brothers, as well as the underground indie classic Frownland. Uh, He also acted in that, uh, and it's a great film, by the way. Definitely seek that out if you've never seen it. His most recent uh, scoring work was for the film The Sweet East, which is now playing in theaters across the country, and today's outro music is a song he wrote for that film. It's called Evening Mirror, and uh, it's sung by the film's lead actress, Talia Ryder. Now, Paul caught my attention uh, a few years back when I saw a piece he wrote for the Paris Review that was called Leave Alexa Alone, The Airless Lacquered Perfection of Steely Dan's Gaucho, which I thought was a fantastic piece uh, and kind of defense of the album. Uh, And it not only caught my attention, but it caught Donald's as well. He saw the piece and liked it, and uh, it ended up leading to a correspondence between Paul and Donald. And then a long-form interview between the two, which I also loved. I thought it was the best Donald interview I had read in a really long time. So I uh, reached out to Paul to see if he would uh, be willing to come on the podcast to talk about all things gaucho and uh, Donald-related, and he did, and it was great. So without further ado, here's Paul Grimstad. Enjoy. Enjoy.
1: I'm from Wisconsin and from a pretty rural part of Wisconsin uh, and that's where I grew up Um, and I had in in retrospect it seems pretty cool parents I mean my earliest memory and it's really still quite vivid and uh, is is hearing the Asia record on LP on my dad's stereo in this house where I grew up out in the woods And I can I can just remember hearing um, the opening spare kind of roads part of is Black Cow the first tune on the record. Right. So. I can still remember hearing that. And then, of course, the song Asia was just this total world. And that's got to be age five, six. So so it starts and then, you know, that records on a lot at my parents having like entertaining, having company over having parties. And that that's one of the things that's playing in the background. It wasn't till later after, you know, getting into and discovering how great Dylan was, for example, uh, maybe junior high or high school that you go back and 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 you, you discover just how rich and the songs are and how 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 well made it is how well made it is both at the level of the words and the arrangements and the chords you know that that comes later but there's a really early deep memory of hearing the asia lp just on in the home so your father
0: was a fan of it
1: big time yeah and it, it all tied in with that period of and this came up when I talked to Donald. It 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 was all bound up with the hi-fi world of stereo systems and and sort of fetishizing the components of a stereo. And and of course, Asia was I think Asia was one of the records that people in hi-fi stores put on to demonstrate speakers or receivers or amps so I and my dad my dad had that he was a he was a hi-fi guy
0: yeah there's still a a little bit of that culture kind of persisting today it's not as prevalent as it was maybe when those records came out sort of the idea of being like a hi-fi guy or something
1: yeah yeah I think the late mid to late 70s is when that became really exploded as both a commercial marketing thing and also as an aesthetic thing uh you know and and the and and the, the emergence of stereo and and then quad for a while you know there was a cur- there was a brief vogue for quadraphonic mixing i guess that's turned into 5.1 now but those are somewhat more rarefied kinds of systems but yeah it's all it's it's i think of it as kind of a 70s thing
0: some have said that maybe that element of Steely Dan's music actually overshadowed the, you know, what they were actually singing about. Like people got really obsessed with the sort of. Right.
1: I think that's, yes. I think that's the probably. Hi-fi. Donald told me that w- Walter was really, I don't want to say more of, but a lot of the, of the really audio wonk hi-fi stuff was coming from Walter and Walter had a similar background where where he was very interested in an in audio technology and and but yeah i mean and I, I i i don't know if that's i i don't know if that's totally uh um the right dynamic or the right way to understand it i think it was very the two of them worked in a really really intimately collaborative way um but yeah it, it the song it's not that the songs it's not that those songs Walter and, and and Donald's songs depend on some very, very luxurious, high-end audio representation. They're amazing songs at the level of the lead sheet. You can just sit down and play through them. And as I did the other day, you can just play through a song like Glamour Profession and just go through... The, the chord voicings and the words and the melodies and it's astonishing it is these are absolutely incredible songs that hold up at the level just of the bare information they 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 are really really way up there i'm talking like duke ellington george gershwin up there you know playing through a steely dan song or any or a beatles song or whatever your left hand is the bass and your right hand is the guitar so you can and with with donald and walter rarely does the root namely what your left hand is playing the bass rarely does it um pick out the root of the chord the 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 chords are almost always slack what's called slash chords which means the bass is doing something that is picking out a different voice in the chord than the root and this is something they're getting from bill evans i hear a lot of bill evans in their chord voicings i hear a lot of wayne shorter in their chord voicings but the piano you know if you want to move through the intro to deacon blues it's going to make, at least to me, it's going to make more sense at the piano. You can actually see how the harmonies working, even though it's a very lovely guitar part, actually, as displayed on the record. I'm assuming by Dean Parks, maybe. I can't remember. We'll have to get those. I might botch a few of the... <laughs> uh, I don't want to get them wrong, but it's a very lovely opening guitar figure, that descending figure, There's a lot of great moments like that on Asia. There's the opening. There's that opening kind of scary liturgical thing in Josie, which has almost nothing to do with the rest of the song. Um, and, And that is just a piece that's just a standalone piece on its own, you know. And then that that very Wayne like thing that closes out that bit, you know, I mean, the record they're just packed with amazing ideas. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I agree. So so, when you were growing up, how did you, or did you play music? I mean, did you play the piano or guitar? Oh, oh or? yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I played, let's see. Well, I had a few kind of fleeting piano lessons with a Catholic nun whose name was Sister Cecilia, who did show me modes, that is scales, I could play through. Major and minor scales of every every note in the in the of of the piano. So just going up chromatically and just picking out the scales. Aside from that, though, no, pretty pretty self taught. I eventually switched to guitar. I ended up being the guitarist in my high school jazz ensemble, which was a really we had a very uh, advanced and and I think unusually sophisticated program at the time we were doing everything from take the a-train to uh to some i think i played some django reinhardt something or other at one point i did an arrangement of nefertiti for guitar uh at around then so i learned to read chord charts in high school as a guitarist so I switched from piano to guitar but I also got really into rock and roll and 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 that's the other huge piece of this is just I heard a lot of rock and roll growing up I love rock and roll I I love I I love Little Richard and Chuck Berry and 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 Sun Records and I love the Beatles and the Kinks and Dylan and so on so there was I was always kind of guitar lend itself a little bit more to that and then I was writing. I was writing songs because then we were getting into the replacements and the you know the Pixies and uh I and, and in the in the midst of all that I really loved Zappa, which seemed to be a complete wild card. There was nowhere to really put Zappa. It was it was rock. It was rock and jazz and avant classical all kind of swirled together. And uh, so that Zappa's in there too, and he's an incredible guitarist. And so it all kind of started swirling around somewhere around age 16 or 17 with understanding chords, writing songs, getting into music and just having it basically completely all consuming, devouring my life around that time, just being completely into music. Still am, in a way.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, you do it, you know, for a living in part. So. So you're really into rock and roll, but you also have this kind of more sophisticated, um, not only appreciation, but like you're composing, you know, you're on music and playing in a jazz band. Is that where Steely Dan comes in? Because they would fit right into that, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, I was listening to to Donald and Walter on a uh, Marian McPartland's show, Piano Jazz. Have you ever heard that? They did an episode probably around the time of I think when they're making two against nature. So I guess that would have been yep. 2000 or so. And in the course of that interview with McPartland, they say, oh, we met at Bard college and we were into all the same things. And it we'd been listening apparently to the same jazz radio station. And science fiction and black humor and then i think walter kind of casually adds and rock and roll this is not to forget that in the middle of all this is rhythm and blues there's a certain way of uh arranging for drums bass and guitar which is backbeat and syncopation and one four five chords with shuffle you know the chuck berry arrangement so that's When you listen, yes, when you listen to Steely Dan, what you hear is, oh, this basic scaffolding, which is a rhythm rhythm and blues scaffolding, can be pushed in so many directions. It can be thought through in so many different ways. It's almost infinitely elastic, what you can do in this rather simple harmonic structure. And it comes down to the way it feels and the way it moves. An earlier generation would have said swings. And it doesn't and rock and roll does indeed swing, good rock and roll swings. But I, I see like to flip code switch on this and say, well, I think straight no chasers kind of rock and roll. You know, <laughs> yeah. And and I, you know, I think uh uh epistrophes kind of rock and roll. So I think it it flips both ways, you know. Um monk, you tell me monk doesn't rock. I think monk <laughs> know rocks he swings but so maybe there's a maybe there's a middle zone there at the level of the way rhythm and blues or or swing feels that it has to do with you know syncopation and backbeat and all the technical things you might get into but i think yes steely dan is just absolutely at the epicenter of whatever that is i mean something like chain lightning really has is so deep in the in the way that it moves you know the way that it actually feels i know donald loves ray charles and i i I think there's some of that in there too i would put him in there too you know
0: yeah especially with regards to um donald's like performance style i mean Mm -hmm. his look with those glasses and sort of (laughs) the way he moves on the piano i've always thought of ray charles like even more than the music is is, his um his presentation you know when i when i'm watching it's, clips it's, of him
1: it's clearly way in there and there's a wonderful song on morph the cat called what i do that i think lays it out pretty explicitly um i think that's sung from the it's about ray charles or it's sung from the pov of ray charles
0: it's like the ghost of ray charles talking yeah, to donald or something because he I had guess, just passed yes. away i think right before that album came out i don't yeah. know if that that's it i would have to go back because I haven't listened to that album in a little bit, but yeah, no, I know it's definitely like it's about Ray Charles and some, or it's, he's singing from the voice of Ray Charles. Um, it's, yeah,
1: it's, it, it's lovely and great. I think even at one point he says, I rocked before they named it rock and roll. <laughs> so there's the, there's that idea, you know?
0: Yeah. Donald's acknowledging exactly what you were talking about.
1: I think so. I might, maybe that's where I'm stealing it from. <laughs> yes, I come to play. named it rock and roll's what I do It's what I do I'm specially qualified to keep them satisfied It's what I do You the left I was I was making a record in in a friend's apartment on the Upper West Side around the block from the Beacon I was and went and heard them do gaucho all the way through one of those nights where they do the whole record all the way through. And so that event, which as I sort of tell it in the piece had a number of, I thought kind of funny little contingencies around it involving the purchase of a toilet seat and a few other things. (laughs) And uh, I thought, oh, that might be a funny and also a, a way into talking about how much I love that record. So I wrote the thing and then whatever it's out there in the world then a couple of years after that I remember it was Thanksgiving I get this email to uh, it's coming coming it says Donald Fagan and I, I immediately thought somebody was messing with me <laughs> um, and I, I note this at the beginning of the tablet interview um I thought someone you know is 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 having having a a lark and, and gaslighting me in some way trying to, but no, it turned out, turned out he liked, so Donald read the thing for the Paris review wow, and liked it and it, and, uh, and that led to an email correspondence. And then I asked if he wouldn't mind if uh, we sat down and talked. So we did. And that led to the tablet thing.
0: That doesn't happen too often. And I say this as someone who has talked to many people from the kind of steely dan world uh getting a uh, an unprompted email uh from the man himself is not a common occurrence i mean were you just completely like i mean awestruck you know
1: i was i was i i it took me a while to just internalize it that it wasn't in fact um somebody messing around <laughs> and, and i still didn't believe it i actually continued not to believe it until i actually met him and then I was like, well, this, this doesn't appear to be a clone. <laughs> I actually as Donald, you know, is really into science fiction. And that's in fact a little bit of what we talked about. And I was thinking I had sort of science fiction-like thoughts about what if this is some kind of um duplicate copy <laughs> and and you know, like the android of Abraham Lincoln in the dick novel, uh, We Can Build You. Um but no, and it, it, it was, yeah, it was, it was, I mean. Whatever. It was like really, really amazing and really cool. And I loved I love, you know, getting to meet him and talking to him. And we still occasionally email. Um so yeah, it's 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 great. I still don't I I have somewhat I don't know how to put this, I'm still a tad superstitious about the the what those records mean to me. That is from I guess I'd say from pretzel logic all the way up through whatever the most recent solo work is I I I, yep. I almost don't want to believe that these things were made by mortal finite flesh and blood people in which in fact they were mm-hmm. you want to deny that they were but I also want to preserve some sort of completely irrational sense of mystery about these things. As it does, as I noted earlier, as it does go back to some very, very early childhood things. So it's it's kind of like, yeah, you know, unbelievable experience. You meet you meet one of your heroes. It's just, you know, it's complicated. Donald was certainly a hero of mine. Um, and yet I want to think those records kind of exist on a imperishable platonic plane <laughs> that is superhuman somehow, you know
0: yeah some would say that they designed them to be that way like they're so Maybe, meticulously yeah. crafted and they're there's such um almost objects unto themselves that you know the way the artwork and every moment of you know especially asia and gaucho seems to be engineered for a specific idea or feeling or you know yes. um
1: yes so and, I, the be- and the wonderful covers and the, the weird the, the the enigmatic titles how great is. How how excellent a title is Katie lied? What a great title! <laughs> um, or the Royal Scam? Uh, you know, these are just they're all, they're they're so of a you're right they're so of a piece, and and their well wroughtness is such that they almost seem to be transcendental objects. Yes,
0: I can relate to that too. Actually, when I started doing this podcast, my original rule was I'm not going to talk to anyone. Who has a direct connection to donald or steely dent that was my original Mm. uh idea because i kind of wanted to keep that distance you know i wanted that to exist on that plane and then i'm doing this thing but um over time you just
1: violated your own principle
0: (laughs) the temptation (laughs) got too great where you know like i recently interviewed rob mouncey who plays on uh yep yep profession and Babylon. you know did the arrangements for babylon sisters and um, Amazing. Amazing. It was incredible. Yeah. So so I'm, I'm slowly ever so slowly, you know, kind of tiptoeing in that direction. But I have yet to have any kind of contact with with Donald. So. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, why did you center your piece around Gaucho? What about that album?
1: The title I had actually fairly early, which is which is rare for me in the writing that I do. I usually cook up a title in the process of revising and in the process of making a piece the title will kind of happen at some point and, and, you know, it'll come out of the process, but the, the idea of the, not, 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 I'm sorry, not the title. I did get that at the end. Leave Alexa alone is what it's called, but then there's this little like pull quote subheading, which gets to your question, which is something like the, on the airless lacquered perfection, something, something, something of Gaucho. And that, that's what it was. It was like, I guess I I guess my thinking was here's this body of work that is known for per, as you said earlier, perhaps known disproportionately for for the for its audio fastidiousness and its and its kind of exquisite um, you know um, uh, construction. Aside from the fact that the, the, the material is just you know amazing on its own, you can you can sit at a piano with a lead sheet and it's still amazing. But I thought, well, okay, if that's true, if this is the band that's known for this like kind of vibe of of perfectly made objects, then then Gaucho is the embo- like it's even within within that world, it's the most <laughs> you know it's it's the most excessively. You know, fussy or 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 glossy as an as an object, famously so. I mean, you know, and and so I thought, well, and I mean, I I I I do love I do love the songs, but I thought Ga- Gaucho is the one that really pushes not only within the, not only within Steely Dan's world, but within the world of the multi track stereo recording. I do not know of another record that pushes the art quite as far toward like the platonic ideal of what that might be. That's the that's the conceit anyway. I think,
0: yeah. And many would say to its detriment, I mean, there's a lot of criticism even within the Steely Dan fan world that they took it too far on that record, that it was too fussy, it was too meticulous. They got too obsessed with the pursuit of perfection That the result was something that was just too sterile. It was Mm. lacking some of the warmth of Asia. So actually, I think it's one of the more like divisive records that they put out. Like people pretty unanimously love Asia, but Gaucho doesn't have that unanimity. But you still chose, you know, Gaucho. This is the one that I want to talk about.
1: It's the one I want. I guess it was the one at least in that piece. I mean, I I I could probably I think knock out an equally enthusiastic equally excited piece about Pretzel Logic or the nightfly or camacariet but but for this piece yeah i like the idea of it being like yeah almost so uh taken so far into the realm of uh uh honing and 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 meticulousness that it becomes perverse and and it becomes you know almost it's, it's it's a kind of weird pop experiment um i like that about it a lot uh and 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 it's got also at the level of composition it's got some of the most far out and and uh you know um it's got a kind of noirish tinge like uh on uh my rival yeah it's got these like kind of private detectives going around you've got people having Satchuan dumplings in the (laughs) curse of glamour profession um my favorite and this is also all going on at the lyrics this sense of pushing something really far into the bizarre and the and 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 uh you know the perverse I asked Donald, Donald and I talk about this in the piece, but it's like there's that moment in the glamour profession where we've got a guy using a radar on a yacht stalking the dread moray eel. <laughs> I mean which to me, that's just you're in, you know, the realm of pinchon or or of at that point, you know. Well, in the first verse, you you learn of this Coke dealer. And 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 so if the narrative is to you know, however obliquely the narrative continues to the second verse, and you want to show like some of the people the Coke dealer's hanging out with, one of whom is this guy, Jack, with his radar on a technified yacht, you know, going around stalking eels. Um, this is just part of the world of the guy from the first verse and some other people that he's hanging out with.
0: Yeah. It's funny because um, the lyrical universe is one of the things that for me makes Gaucho like one of their really most compelling works. Like there's something about the clarity of the narratives and just the, the way they kind of, you know, the, the overall shape of it and then how they focus on these different characters on each track. So you have glamour fashion, you have maybe this drug dealers, coke dealer, Right. Hey 19, you have this sleaze bag who's with a younger woman. Right. Gaucho, you have the, you know, the gaucho amigo and the narrator and the scene at the Custer Dome. There's something about the way those kind of individual stories put together, create a, a, a kind of an overall picture, which even on Asia, you know, Asia. I mean, obviously, it's an amazing album. I love it. And, you know, sonically, Asia and gaucho, they're both great. But it doesn't quite have that for me where the tracks um the, the, there's a sort of uh, sum is greater than the parts thing happening with Gaucho. For me personally, definitely,
1: I agree totally about just exactly yeah. what what you said about Gaucho. There's something really vivid and cinematic about about each song, uh, and they have a clarity. There's a there's a there's a clarity. At, kind of of there are characters. There are there's a mise en scène, and 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 there are stories. Yeah, and maybe Gaucho is the most like that. Um, Maybe. I mean the, the guy in Deacon Blues is a pretty vivid character. Uh and and you know there are there the guy in Kid Charlemagne is a pretty <laughs> vivid character. And they're 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 also a little yeah, so I I agree with you. There's something there's something unusually and even eerily lucid about Gaucho on every level. That's what I like about it. This Uncanny and slightly vertiginous, and 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 it's and hallucinatory clarity of everything on Gaucho is really it's rare and it's it's strange. There's something super strange about it. It it it's it's kind of in it's Sometimes it's in slow motion. <laughs> it, 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 the 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 actual timbrel choices are really odd throughout. There are on Third World Man, a very gorgeous song. There are those glorious huge multi-stacked Stratocaster parts that I, I'm gonna guess that's Larry Carlton overdubbing himself, but I, I yeah. don't know. But those are that's a really special kind of unique tone color. And and there are other things um throughout where I don't know, there's something about that production where the combinations of the guitars and the acoustic pianos and the synths and the electric pianos and the background vocals, they're stacked up and mixed up in ways that create some some really I don't know of any other record that quite sounds like that.
0: Yeah, there's nothing quite like it. I mean, there are other albums that came out around that time that share the sort of high fi you know, elements of it that you were talking about earlier, but not in the way that, you know, they did it. It just Something about the way everything is kind of working
1: together on that one. It's, it's just, it's, yeah. Um, I also think Donald- Also, sure. I mean, I know it said yeah. a lot about that, but on that record also, you know, to, yeah. to, to just, what's so different about Gaucho from, from a lot of the other uh, expensive, some would say overproduced records of the time that would just stretch across the FM dial and would include things like, you know, Orleans and Exile. <laughs> and you know, um, or things that are going on in the more LA, the LA thing that you'd find on Warren Zevon records or Linda Ronstadt records or Eagles records, all of those and Fleetwood Mac records, all of which are very well produced, very, very, you know, high end. But there's something like sharp and acerbic and very different sounding about the Steely Dan records of that same period. And if that's in the harmony that's in the actual arrangement choices and in the harmony. That's not about the production. That's about the musical choices those guys are making. That's worlds apart from what's going on in Linda Ronstadt or Deep Bill's record. I of abiding fascination with with the records is how they were made what they did what the process was what the tracking process was what order things were done in what's doubled what's not whether there's anything in the chain and there are a couple things that have gone up on youtube in the last i'd say two or three years that are i found wonderfully uh uh illuminating about about these questions one is there's a there's an interview with Elliot Shiner out there, which I'm sure you've seen, that's about tracking gaucho. And one of the things you learn, if I'm remembering correctly, is that there's nothing in the chain on Donald's vocal lead vocals. It's pretty much, I think, like a like a U87 Neumann condenser mic almost going directly into the desk, maybe with like a little bit of EQ or compression, but not much. And I thought, wow. That's incredible. Uh, that it's just a pretty much an untreated live vocal, more or less. The other thing that's out there is some footage of them making, uh, I believe, two against nature at Riverside, or is that the was that the name of Donald's studio, Riverside, yep. River, so- River Sound? Sound, yeah, River Sound. And you do get a glimpse; it's kind of fly on the wall, real time footage of, I think um uh west of Hollywood. Hmm. I think they're tracking west of Hollywood. Uh and and you kind of see the process a little bit. Uh there they seem to be mixing and and uh listening to playback on that. I find I could watch I could watch that stuff for all day long. You <laughs> so know you're really interested
0: that, in their process.
1: Totally totally. I, I, I'd love to know I love to just see the stages by with, by which and in some cases you can, and in some cases you can infer it. And I've asked Donald about it a little bit. And in some cases I've learned these things. But to just observe step by step how it gets from the lead sheet at the piano with the sung melody to the stereo track that you hear on the record and and all that's this is a, so. This is, I guess, the thing about arranging. I'm super interested in arranging. So this, a tune is done. Yeah. You you the 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 imp the data is in place. You, yeah. you, you've got chords and chord even maybe even chord voicings and a melody and words. And then what choices do you make at that stage for the final mixed thing that you hear? Mm. And they're so amazing at that. Yeah. They're so so are lennon and mccartney by the way another another example of just the 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 alchemy of getting from i don't like the word demo because i don't really believe in demos but because a demo might have amazing stuff going on in in it that you want (laughs) to keep but just that there's a lot of excitement in composing but there's also a lot of excitement in arranging and the choices that you make to get that basic tune in its raw form into a full-blown multicolor widescreen stereo track i mean you know it's just it's just fascinating and and the, the beatles are, are 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 another you know the reason i put and i'd say another band xtc i'd say those 3 for one one sort of superficial reason but 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 a telling one which is that all three had moments where touring took a back seat if not wholly vanished in in favor of focusing almost exclusively on the art of record making so the Beatles did that after 66 um xCC did that after 82. And Steely Dan did that after roughly seventy-five. Don- Donald and Walter went back heavily into playing live, and they're amazing at it. But, yeah. uh, but in each case, Beatles, XTC, Steely Dan—it's like they're each going, okay, what can we do at a multi-track desk, and and what can we do with song form in that environment? Forget about re- reproducing it live. Who cares? Let's just see what we what kind of musical objects we can come up with in in this relatively controlled environment and so 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 each of those bodies work um um can 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 you know I love that Mark Lewisohn book that day by day Beatles recording sessions book yeah you just see what they did at 2 p.m on May 21st 1968. oh George added uh, a tambourine to the left channel. <laughs> on you know dear prudence or whatever so so that those that's that's all that I, I just can't get enough of that stuff
0: just bringing things back to steely dan for a second yes. you know <laughs> I, I mean i could talk about the beatles you know easily you know for another hour but um one of my uh, favorite moments in the interview that you did with donald and this was actually kind of screenshotted and shared a few times on twitter because it was such a funny uh kind of tidbit
1: as, uh, as somebody uh, who's not on Twitter, I, I I don't know what gets shared or not.
0: Yeah, there was one. Well, you know what happens is when people do these long form pieces, people will take like the funniest moment of an interview and they'll share just that, right. and then it'll go viral, right? Because it's hard to make right. a whole article go viral, um, because Twitter's yes. really a short form. Oh, wow. yeah. Yes. <laughs> but the one that that seemed to uh, pop from your uh, you know interview was the part where you ask about Donald's aversion to reverb.
1: Yeah, oh, oh right, right, and, right, right.
0: And Donald responds, uh, I just don't want to be alienated from my labor. Yeah. <laughs> and you said, I was not expecting a Marxist critique. Right, a Marxist
1: answer. A Marxist
0: answer, yeah, that
1: was it. Um, right, well, that, that couple things with that. Um, one is that the, the Steely Dan records are on the whole indeed pretty dry um are they're, they're they're and then that's just I think straightforwardly like you want to be able to hear what things sound like. You know, too much, not everybody can do Phil Spector, uh Ronette's crystals singles, uh, where things are awash in these, you know, these big um these big clouds of reverb. Um and so you know, I think there's an aesthetic preference there for for clarity uh and crispness of presentation you just want to hear what things sound like so reverb can um the other the other thing is like and i think this guy i'm pretty sure this came up with in the interview i can't i can't remember but um that's what the blue note that's what the rudy van gelder blue note records sound like so i think donald at one point says yeah that's just there's a kind of clarity of the, in the image, whether in mono or stereo on those Van Gelder productions, the Englewood cliffs, um, which by the way, were those, whatever the engineering approach was, I think is still largely kind of mysterious. I think Van Gelder was pretty protective of whatever it was he was doing down to mics and whatever the, There's this light compression in there, some light EQ, I think it mostly comes down to where you put a mic, yeah. Um, so I think Donald also, Donald and Walter. I think growing up listening to to the jazz stuff in the late fifties and early sixties, and if it was on Blue Note, it was very likely produced by Rudy Van Gelder, and those those records are on the whole pretty dry. Uh, so that that might be one. I guess I'm I, I'm uh, taking a stab at. At uh, where the where the the taste for minimal reverb could come from the Marxist bit it's a somewhat you know mm-hmm. the I don't want to be alienated from my laborers of course got the ring of a of Marxian vocabulary uh, that's part of part of what Capital Volume One is analyzing is the <laughs> way that the wage the wage laborer becomes alienated from from his labor. Um, for reasons that Mark, Marx goes into in, in, in great intricate detail and what in, involves an entire socioeconomic critique of modernity and so on, but uh, and of surplus value. But I think what I, I'm, I'm gonna, i going to, again, as I said at the beginning, I don't want to speak for Donald Fagan, but other than to note that that is indeed overtly Marxist vocabulary, <laughs> but. I think what what's so the the real question is what's the connection between reverb and alienation from one's labor? <laughs> and i I think again, like if something if if you gotta look through the 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 haze of reverberation to try to find what the musical part is, then I think you could say that you're being alienated at uh, from he also said that he didn't much like certain kinds of digital keyboards. I think this p- bit got cut out of the interview. When we did it with the editors at Tablet, but I think he also said along these lines that he didn't like certain kinds of digital keyboards because the attack was was a little bit delayed. There was like latency, and that's in so the piece actually. Oh, that's in the piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's the same thing. Like that's in, there's something alienated when the tech or when the when the if the if the means by which the the sound is being realized is like delaying you or separating you from your performance, then that's alienating. I think also in that piece, and it was very important for me to ask, as someone who, I guess, in my own music making, I've grown very, very comfortable with using drum machines, and synths, and for a lot of the film score work, I indeed get very deep into dialing in Patches and timbres on synths, analog synths, which again, the possibilities are endless. You can, in fact, even create new colors that, that are not of this earth using synths. So, if you're into tone color, there's something to be interested in there. Uh, so, I wanted to ask him, and I do, you know, the Nightfly is kind of a Lynn drum machine record and it's got a lot of synths on it. And surprise, surprise, it's some of the most musical and thoughtful and imaginative use of drum machines and synths out there. You know there were some influences in the picture we really like the scores indeed mo- movies we watched all the time at that at that stage around the apartment of the george romero movies dawn of the dead day of the dead night of the living dead but especially dawn of the dead which is the, sc- the scores by the band goblin yeah uh, and i believe they're an italian like synth rock band mm-hmm. I don't know how well known they are, but we so we we started with that as a reference point and then it got it got somewhat more Baroque after that. But yeah, that score was made with two or three cents and maybe a couple of other instruments that were laying around. There might be a bit of guitar, there might be a bit of electric guitar in some of those cues. Yeah, and I then, thought of like I, 70s I horror. More, I got yeah, horror, horror for sure. Yeah. Um And then I got more, I never saw, it's very strange. I never sought out film scoring. I've only done music for movies if someone has asked. And from Frownland, I've been invited to score more movies. Yeah. Did you
0: enjoy the process of film scoring? Like from the beginning from Frownland? um, mean,
1: I still enjoy it. It's very different from the kind of maniacal control that you have. When you're doing your own songs, and I play every, I I don't say this as a self-aggrandizing way. I play everything on the records I do. So uh, even on the song year stuff, I just layer cake everything up from the drums to the final mix. Usually, I do everything myself. Sometimes, you know, there'll be someone coming, but I I enjoy the kind of hyper focus isolation of doing that and having total control and having total freedom. But with film, it's never like that. That's not what working on a film is. It's it's totally different and has its own enjoyments that are collaborative. So working on a film as a musician just means constantly being in dialogue with other people about what you're doing. That could be a cinematographer. That could be a sound design person. That could be a director. Might even be an actor, depending on the milieu might be an editor, but you are one piece in a much bigger puzzle. And so the pleasures of film scoring are much more collaborative than the hyper focus isolato in a garret making a tune from the ground up. I like both, but you know, when you're working on a film, it's what is the phrase? I guess it's Faulkner, kill your darlings. You're always killing your darlings. You You might think something's great and it's absolutely got to go in and nope, just for whatever reason, that one in the end didn't make the cut. Or there's one you're like, eh, this is fine, wouldn't be (laughs) my, you know, but that's the one that's like going to be at the top of the film and the, you know, so you don't have as much say, you have some say, but you don't have total control over what's going on.
0: Yeah, that must have been a big adjustment for you. If you like to have complete control over your projects, you know.
1: Yeah, you got it. Film scoring is just your team player. You're yeah. you're one. You're hitting. You're hitting in the lineup with nine other guys. You you might sometimes you might need to just you know bunt one down the third base line <laughs> to advance the runner or hit a sack fly. You know, you're, you 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 got to just think about the overall outcome.
0: What's the process like in terms of how you actually work? Do you like, are you watching footage? I mean, you know, and then kind of playing along. I mean, what is it, you know, what does that process look like?
1: Good question. I'll give you a not very satisfying answer. It's (laughs) it's different every time, Mm. you know, it's, it's, it depends, depends on sometimes someone will, will, will say we're done shooting. It's in the can. Um, I, we're going to want music between these time markers. Here's the footage, here the time, all mapped out. Oh, this is how Josh and Benny Softie worked when I worked with them. Here's where we want the music. We, we know exactly where we want it. We, it's gonna be this long. And then there's gonna be, you know, 1500 texts after that, <laughs> honing and owning and, and tweaking and getting it just so. So that's one way of writing, uh, one way of doing film music. Sometimes someone writes, he says, You've already recorded these tracks that I really like. Can I can I pay you a licensing fee mm. up front? Can I please use them? That ends up being part of a score for a film. This most recent thing, where I, I wrote a song for this actor Natalia Ryder, for this movie The Sweet East, that was kind of against. That was kind of off-brand in the sense that that wasn't. That was just more of a of a you know write a song. That can be sung on screen at the top of the movie to set the tone and the atmosphere of the movie, and that was great. That was that was done at Seer Sound in Midtown, by the way, where I think some of Two Against Nature was made. There you go. Uh, uh, <laughs> and I think some of maybe some of Morph the Cat was made there. So that's a beautiful room. The people, Roberta Seer, is amazing. The the engineers there are great, and 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 that. So that that tune, which is called Evening Mirror came about in a way that's different from the way I usually work uh, uh, in that it was a a sui generis song made in 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 a sort of different environment than I'm used to working in and so on.